Today, we'll return again to chapter 6 of the book of Luke. As we've said in the past, we go verse by verse. And here we find that immediately after choosing his 12 disciples out of all of his many disciples, Jesus began to teach these folks about some of the more essential matters of life. And while it should be no surprise to us, we can't help but realize that Jesus was the very best communicator this world will ever know. As he preached and as he taught the people, Jesus' words were so rich with meaning. Have you noticed that you can read a verse today and then six months from now you'll read that verse again and you'll get a whole other meaning and a better understanding of it? That's what takes place. The Lord Jesus' words were able to describe matters both in a literal sense, and we'll see that today, but also at the same time, those same words in using allegories and symbology, Jesus was able to express very deep truths from the Spirit. Now we know that Jesus especially liked to use parables, and he used word pictures that would describe very ordinary circumstances of life. But at the same time, those circumstances of life would express deep spiritual contexts and meanings. And that's what God calls in these scriptures secrets of his kingdom. He reveals secrets of his kingdom to us, but only to us who believe. And we can see that taking place in these words of our passage today. So if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 6, there Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's using familiar words that the Bible scholars like to call beatitudes. Here in verse 20, Jesus began his teaching with the simple words, profound but very simple words, blessed are you poor. And again, note that Jesus is able to use words both in their literal sense while at the same time, those same words will have deep, profound spiritual meaning. Verse 20. Then he, this is the Lord Jesus, lifted up his eyes towards his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast your name out as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. In an earlier message as we were studying about the ministry of the Lord Jesus, we read from chapter 4 of this book of Luke, beginning in verse 18, these words Jesus quoting them from the book of Isaiah the prophet, and he was saying them about himself. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Notice those same words. To preach the gospel to the poor. 
He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now in that message, we acknowledge that while much of the matters that Jesus taught and preached about centered in and around some of the social and cultural issues of the day, but he was far more interested in eternal matters of the soul of those who were listening, far more concerned about their souls than their temporal needs, their physical and emotional needs. We said at that time that those words, preach the gospel to the poor, were not just making reference to people who were economically poor, but that those words also spoke about those who are poor in spirit, poor in spirit, the ones who knew that they were needy in matters of the soul. And you and I should have at least moments like that where we know that we are needy in matters of the soul because we are needy in matters of the soul. Again, God's words are so very rich in meaning and in application. And as we can see from the words of this passage today, His truth is able to say many things all at the same time. Here His truth is able to speak not only to the practical and physical and emotional needs of people, they're able to speak to the deeper needs of the Spirit. In this passage today, as Jesus traveled about the countryside teaching and preaching, the people were hearing new and different things about God. You'll recall in other verses in Scripture, Jesus would say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. That's what he's doing here. He's teaching and preaching things to people, and they are hearing new and different things about God, different from the things that they had been taught by their priests in their synagogues. And having no Bibles to study at home as we do today, the people knew only the things that the priests had been teaching them. And it seemed that very little instruction was given about the common and the ordinary matters of daily life. And they especially knew very little about the more deep and intimate truth within the heart of God. That was not the nature of the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests. And that's why Jesus came to live among us, to reveal the heart and the person of God the Father. That was his purpose, to reveal the person of God the Father and to give you and me deeper and more intimate understanding of God's desires and purposes in for us. Here in these words, Jesus invites us to look below the surface of these written words and to allow the Holy Spirit the freedom to reveal the way that we should respond to some of the common matters of our daily life. And he does that throughout all of those verses that I just read to us. And so for the next three or four weeks, I'd like for us to take a very careful look into those words of the Lord Jesus and ask the Holy Spirit to show us more about the heart of God. Now, firstly... The Bible commentators differ as they read these words as to whether this is the same sermon that's given to us in Matthew chapter 5. There, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I don't know if that is so or not. I do believe that Jesus probably spoke these same words as he traveled about. 
And because these particular words seem to refer to some of the more practical matters of life, I'm going to assume that this is probably a very different message than that given on the Sermon on the Mount. Again, Jesus spoke these words many different times to many different people. Now here Jesus begins with the simple words of a very profound blessing. And as is so often the case, within these scriptures, it's the words that are left unspoken that bear the greater blessing. Hidden within these words is a covenant. It's a covenant regarding the manner in which our hearts and our minds are supposed to deal with the need and the desire for money. He said, blessed are you poor. Here, God is instructing us in how to deal with our need and our desire for money. And he wants that to be personal in each of our lives. And note also in the words that I just read that there's no particular amount of money or wealth that's mentioned. And that's because the words poor and rich are very relative. They are truly relative to each person's individual circumstance. Jesus is instead here getting down to the hard attitude that a person might have towards any amount of money or wealth that they might have. Verse 20 again. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. What is poor? Do you believe yourself to be poor? Are you poorer than someone else? Are you more wealthy than someone else? When you drive through the neighborhoods near your house, do you realize that you might not be as poor as your neighbor or someone down the street? And that's what Jesus is asking you and me to think about here today. He says to us, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, much in the same way that some of the popular television evangelists of today preach this prosperity-type religion. The scribes and the Pharisees actually often taught a very similar message. The belief was that if a person did right things, then God would be pleased and He'd bless that person financially. And that does have some truth to it, but not always. Not always. And armed with only that misguided belief, many people in churches and Christian ministries, they've gone astray down wrong paths. I can recall during my days of working in the ministry there at French Camp that I heard someone say, God is blessing us financially. That must mean that we are doing something right. God is blessing us financially. That must mean that we're doing something right. Now again, sometimes that might be true. But the reality is that those two matters, our finances and our doing something right, they're mutually independent of one another. Yes, God can and often does work the two together, but not always. Not always. Sometimes it's better for a person or a church or a ministry organization to barely scrape by financially. Because even a slight amount of extra money can become a distraction and lead them off down a wrong pathway. I found that to be especially true in managing my own personal and family finances. And I'd ask you to consider that same thing. Extra money in our pocket can cause you and me to dream dreams that we should not dream. Dreams about another car 
or another truck, perhaps a bigger house or some toy that we always wanted. And as we dream, we seem to forget the cardinal rule about owning something, and that is that everything that you own owns a little bit of you. Everything that you own owns a little bit of you. If you have a camper or a bass boat or a four-wheeler, and I'm thinking of us men, and you ladies probably have some similar things that uh, you dream about. But if we have a camper, we have to take that out and use it. And we owned a camper while I was working, which meant that I only had Saturday and Sunday to go out in the camper, which meant it interfered with church on Sunday. And too often that takes place. Now, it's not as if those things are in themselves sinful. They are not. No, sin is far more subtle and sinister than that. Sin simply uses the money and the things that money can buy to distract us, to turn our eyes and our hearts away from the far better thing that God would have us to be doing. There's another expression. The enemy of the best is good. Think about that. I can have a lot of good times out fishing on Sunday, but is that the best thing to do? Distraction is part of the basic nature of wealth. If we have extra wealth, we can travel. We can go places, and that's not necessarily bad. But when taken to the wrong extent, it will be a distraction that takes us away from that which is a better thing. And that's also so with just even a small amount of money. Those that don't have enough money to own a camper, or to go on a trip. Even the small amounts that they have can make strong demands on them. Wealth itself and the amount of money is not the problem. It's the manner in which our heart, our mind, our soul deals with the ownership of that wealth that gets us in trouble. God has chosen to use the simple words, lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh. He uses that expression to express that troublesome problem that we have with all forms of temptation, and especially money. We don't like that expression because it sounds harsh. It sounds vile and vulgar even, and it often is. But listen, lust of the flesh does not have to be the kind of lust that you and I might imagine. Lust of the flesh can be a simple as an inordinate desire for a brand new easy chair to sit in as we watch our brand new high definition television. Lust is a response of the heart. It's a want, it's a desire that goes beyond reasonable boundaries. It really is all right to have a good easy chair. And it's okay to have a high definition television. But it's when our wants and our desires go beyond reasonable boundaries that we need to beware. Yes, you and I need a house, but do we need that expensive one that we're about to buy? Will the purchase of that new house be a thing that will bring happiness to our family? Or will it bring strife, those high payments? Lust of the flesh is a powerful and very sinister adversary. Now here Jesus is dealing specifically with the lustful way that 
we deal with any form of wealth or ownership. And he tells us, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But he then gives us a warning in verse 24, and he says, But woe to you, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. All you'll ever receive is what you will have. Now note first that in these words, Jesus is personalizing his blessing and his warnings. He intentionally addresses these words to you and to yours. Listen to this, verse 20. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You know, we can read right past that and not realize God is talking to me or to you personally. But He is. He's saying, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then the warning also, He says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. We really do need to take heed when we read verses such as this. God is intending for you and me to take these words personally. He's speaking directly to you and to me. And He wants us to remember these words, perhaps in the next use of our money. In our finances, God truly does want to bless you and me personally and individually. We are His children. We are children of the King. And He wants to bless us. And He truly will. Especially if in our wealthy condition, we will still remain poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. If we don't value our money beyond its intended purpose. If we can see our money as simply being a provision that God has given to enable us to go on about His plans and purposes for us. If we can keep that right perspective, then, as His words tell us, Blessed are we, for ours is the kingdom of God. These words, as I mentioned earlier, call to mind the words in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those words tell us that the kingdom of God actually begins now in these living years. And we're living in amongst it. And we're using our money in amongst this kingdom of God. And what we do with that money carries on into our eternity. We don't have to wait until we reach heaven to receive all of God's blessings. He gives them to us now. Let me say all this again, because this is so important, and that we also take warning that He gives to us. The manner in which we enjoy our money and our wealth during our living years really does matter, even and especially on into eternity. Have you thought much about that? If we value our money and our wealth in the wrong way, if we spend our years being consumed by it all, trying to increase our wealth and trying to protect it, watching the stock market tickers every day to see what we should do with the money that we have, always trying to increase it or protect it, the promise here is that whatever we get from all of our efforts is all that we will get. There will be little left in the kingdom of God here on earth for us to enjoy. Now, that's a terrible thought. That's a terrible thought, especially knowing that we're each born-again believers who will spend an eternity with God in heaven. Consider that for a moment. These words again, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. 
God is telling us here that yes, in this life, I might enjoy all these many indulgences of wealth. But that my wealth, your wealth, can go no further than these few days of life. What's that mean when we think about eternity? Will the things that you and I do in this life have an effect on our eternity with God? Now, our usual thoughts about heaven don't allow for considerations such as those. We just accept and believe that heaven is a perfect place. And it really is. It is absolutely perfect. But that perfection all the more bespeaks the truth that God's expressing in these words. If heaven is perfect, then the eternal life that we'll receive and enjoy there will be commensurate with the life that we have lived here in these temporal years. That's exactly what God promises here in these words. Also, though, in two parables in particular, the parable of the talents and the parable of the minus. In both of those, the master left gifts with his servants. And he said, use them wisely. And he implied that I will reward you according to what you do with it. You recall in those that as the master returns, he asks each of his servants, what did you do with the money that I left with you? And one would say, I gained ten more. And he said to that servant, well done, my good and faithful servant. Take charge of ten cities. There were similar blessings in both the parable of the talents and the parable of the minus, saying that God will reward us in heaven for the things that take place in this life. And he tells us also in Revelation chapter 20, there we'll be standing before the Lord in judgment. And in Revelation twenty twelve, he says this, and listen to these words carefully. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And listen, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Folks, that's not just unbelievers. That's you and me. We will also be judged according to our works. Now, in those parables I spoke about, the parable of the talents and the parable of the minus, the servants received differing degrees of blessings for the works that they had done with the gifts that the master had left with them. And that'll be the same for you and me as we spend our eternity in heaven with Christ. And also there in the scriptures, we can read about other special blessings and rewards, especially crowns. He tells us in these scriptures that we will receive crowns or not receive crowns according to that which we have done for the Lord in this life. God is truly just. And while yes, yes, we'll be in heaven because we have Christ as our Savior. And none of us, none of us will be sad or disappointed. The rewards, though, that we receive might be different from one another. I'm fully convinced that we will be very aware of what we could have had had we been more diligent in our faith and in our works while we were still here in this flesh. Let me say that again. We will be very blessed and we will not be disappointed. But I have no doubt that I'll know as I spend an eternity 
with Christ in heaven. I'll know the things that I should have been doing and didn't do. Now in these scripture texts for today, you and I are being warned that we have this serious responsibility to deal rightly with the money and the wealth that we have while we're here in this flesh. Now it all comes from God. Everything that we receive comes from God. Yes, it comes through the hands of our retirement plan or our employer or through Social Security or someone else. But listen, it all comes from the Lord. It was His in the beginning and it always remains His. And that's why I want to close with these next words. God gives us a test. He gives us a test regarding our money. He has established that we are to return a portion to Him as a tithe. Now, there's some arguments throughout the evangelical churches as to whether or not we're still obligated to a tithe. I don't question it. God's Word was good in the Old Testament, and it's good now. Let me read for you what He tells us about our tithe in the book of Malachi. This is chapter 3. He asks a question. He says, Will a man rob God? Yet you robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? And the Lord says, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation of Israel. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now, he says, in this. And listen to these words. Wonderful promise. Try me now, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out on you such blessings that there will not be room enough to receive it. When you and I get to heaven, we'll know clearly then what we should have been doing with the money that we receive in this life. I would encourage each of us to examine these scriptures carefully. And ask the Lord to reveal to each of us if we're pleasing to Him in our handling and our ownership of our wealth. And again, if you and I can pass this very first test of tithing, then I'm convinced that God's blessings will begin to pour out onto us for all eternity. Let me close for now. But let me ask you the question. What is your heart attitude towards your money? And your wealth. Are we covetous and greedy with the little that we have? Do we believe that we worked hard for it so it's mine? It's ours? Do we waste our money on things or habits that distract us from better things that God has for us? With whatever amount of money that we have, folks, Jesus wants us to always remain poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. And so he leaves us with these words. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you, if you're rich, you've received all that you're going to receive. You have received your consolation. Let's pray.